So welcome back to our service here at GBC and our ongoing study of the book of Exodus this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our study on the ten plagues uh, of Egypt. So far we've taken up six. Uh, and the first two or the first two sets of plagues. Remember these plagues are set up so that they're set up in, in stages. Uh, three per stage. So three plagues per stage. We've taken up the first two. Uh, and once again, the overarching purpose of these plagues is for God to reveal himself to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and I would say also to the Israelites, so that the Israelites will continue to build their confidence that the God that says that he's going to save them can actually do it. Uh, at the same time, he's revealing himself to the Egyptians because the Egyptians, they don't believe in him. <laughs> they, don't, they don't believe in God. They don't, they don't think that he's that powerful. They have all... 20 other gods in Egypt that they think can do the same thing. So God's like, no, I'm different. I'm going to reveal myself to you through these plagues, through this display of miracles and wonders. Uh, so now last week we talked about the fifth and sixth plagues. Uh, what were these plagues? Again, there were the death of the livestock and the plague of boils. These plagues came after... Um, plague of flies, if you guys remember. Um, now, these plagues shows us, it's like what I said last week, it shows us that no matter how a human being responds to suffering and pain, God's purpose for the suffering and God's purpose for the pain remains the same for the person who is suffering. And what is that purpose that we talked about last week? Is so that person who is suffering may know God more. and may know God more intimately, if I can add that. If you can still remember, we looked at the lives of two people who went through tremendous suffering and pain. Who were these two? Pharaoh and Job. Pharaoh went through suffering. He's going through suffering, right? Why? Because his land is getting killed. His land is getting destroyed. And then he had boils uh, before this. And Job, well, we all know the story of, of Job. So, um, Pharaoh and Job, we saw uh, that the uh, revelation of God through suffering, through the lives of Pharaoh and Job, prompted different responses from each person. So not all people will respond to suffering the same way. Okay? Uh, it prompted two responses, two different ones. Pharaoh's response was rebellion. Right? Even though he was already suffering, he still hardened his heart. Right? Meanwhile, Job's response to suffering is that of repentance because he lost his children he lost his, all his possessions he saw God even more he even said now I see you I, I first I've, I've only known you through the hearing of the ear now I, I see you so uh, there's two responses to uh, pain and suffering uh, and I said last week that the main reason for this difference uh, in response is the human struggle when it comes to suffering and pain, and I called it the problem of pain, right? Uh, if you were here last week, uh, no, the, the, what's the problem of pain? Uh, well, to say it like simply, no human being finds joy in the presence of pain. Nobody. I don't care who you are, you don't like. Nobody likes pain. That's the problem of pain. Um, pain is something that we avoid, that we do, that we do not crave. Uh, the sad part about that is that God sometimes uses pain and suffering to reveal himself to us. Uh, we, we even talked about that last week as well. Why does God do that? Why does God yell in our pain? Uh, 
Because why? Because we're stubborn people. He does this because of our own stubbornness. Uh, and I would also say his, our, his, his uh, desire, great desire, to save. Right? Uh, that's why he has to yell at us sometimes through pain and suffering. Like if somebody was crossing the railroad tracks and a train was coming and that person was blind and deaf <laughs> and they're crossing the railroad tracks, well, not deaf, but <laughs> that person crossing the railroad tracks has, doesn't see the train coming and you say, brother, sister, there's a train. Would you say it that way? No. You would yell, right? Hello! There's a train coming. Watch out! That's what God is doing through suffering because we're so hard-headed. We're so, right? right? So he has to do that. It is, he's doing that for our own sake and he's also doing it because of his own great desire to save. Uh, but again, that inherent sinful nature that all men have makes us run away from this. We run away from pain and suffering. That's why that's, that's the problem of pain. Right? In Pharaoh's case, some people even rebel, rebel even more uh, instead of uh, repenting. Uh, that, this is why it is only through God's grace that we are able to repent like Jacob and to see the revelation of God through Jesus Christ by faith despite and suffering. Right? So now, that's by way of review. This morning, we're going to be taking up the first plague uh, in this third set of plagues that God has sent upon the land of Egypt, and this is the plague of hail. Uh, this plague, if you look at the verses, if you look at the text, this plague has been given the most verses out of all the other plagues. If you read, if you read the account, and we read it, right? Verse 13 to 35 in chapter 9. He has the most amount of verses dedicated to this plague. Why is that? Why does the plague of hail get the most verses out of all the other plagues? There's a significance to that. That's, what, that's the question we're going to be answering this morning. Why, why is this plague, this plague of hail, so significant. I want to share with you three things that are significant about this plague of hail. First, the plague of hail is significant because it is the deadliest out of all of the plagues. The plague of hail is significant because it is the deadliest out of all of the plagues when it comes to the destruction and death that it caused. Okay? Now some of you are probably saying, what about the tenth? plague. What's the 10th plague? Death of the firstborn. How, who died on the 10th plague? Only firstborn. But what about here? Who died here? <laughs> I would say a lot of people. Everybody who didn't find shelter, if you go back to the text, right? If you didn't take the Lord, word of the Lord seriously, you died. Now how can somebody die from hail? That's why I showed you that video, okay? The hail that we've experienced, like I've experienced here in Canada, is like maybe the biggest, like a quarter, like that, okay? Like Jolens, you know Jolens? Marbles, like Jolens. <laughs> it's this small, 
I mean, you, you'll see some dents on your car. Maybe your windshield will break. But really, we haven't seen real hail. If you look at the, if you remember the video, how big was the hail there? <laughs> Hockey puck size. The one that they were holding was like this big. Imagine if that fell on a car. <laughs> I've seen videos where homes, walls were busted through. Roof, ceilings were, 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 were there was holes in the ceilings of people's homes. Because how big this hail is. And because of the law of gravity, the bigger it is, the faster it comes down. <laughs> so imagine if the hail that the account on Exodus, uh, you know, contained was every, all the hailstones were as big as that. And it was a lot of them. Not just one here, two there, one here, but a lot. Like, <laughs> imagine the kind of destruction that would cause. I would say it's ten times worse than what we saw on the video. In fact, the text describes it, right, in chapter, Exodus 9, chapter, uh, verse 25. Can you guys show it? Exodus 9, verse 25. It says, The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And it struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree. That's some strong hail. Other translations have that. It stripped every tree of the field. Mm. Strong hail. And I think uh, this is very significant about this uh, plague because this is the first time that any of the accounts of the plagues mentions human casualties that is attributed to the plague. So far from the first six, nobody has died yet. Now, it's obvious. It says it struck down. That hail struck down men and beasts. Right? Only this plague and the number 10 plague specifically mentions the death of human beings. Now, there's, again, there's no mention of how many, peop how many people died, but the text did say who were the ones that did die. Who died during the plague of hail? You guys read it. 20 and 21 in chapter 9. You guys read it. Mm. So who died during the plague of hail? Those who did not pay attention to the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, those who feared the word of the Lord through Moses lived. Right? Now, in the context of this story, the life and death situation that this plague or brought was a physical life and death. They died physically. But I believe it also points to the spiritual life and death situation of all mankind. Right? When we talk about life and death in Exodus, it's a pointer to spiritual life and and death. Right? In essence, the fear of God's word is being paralleled to a faith in God's word. So you can also say those who believed the word of the Lord lived. Those who did not died. 
those who believe and took to heart the word of the Lord through Moses lived. And those who did not died. Another example of this kind of language can be found in Habakkuk, uh, same uh, Old Testament. In Habakkuk 2, 1 to 4, let's read that. 2 verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. That's 2 verse 1. Keep going. Verse 2. There's no verse 2. Uh, okay, there we go. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. In verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him, but the righteous shall live by faith. What is the vision that the prophet is talking about here? What is it that will surely come and will not Delay. Let's go back to Habakkuk. This one, chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. We're talking, this is talking about the vision that Habakkuk was talking about in chapter 2, right? Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you will not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for, for violence all their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Verse 11, and they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So what is the thing that is surely coming and will not delay? That. The Chaldeans are coming. Worse than the plague of hail. <laughs> They're coming. That's the vision that the prophet Habakkuk received from God. It is the judgment of God on the corrupt leaders and people of Israel. Right? And this judgment comes in the form of another corrupt nation. Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Now God uses the prophet Habakkuk to inform the people of Israel about this impending judgment. Or we can say this plague, this deadly plague. How? By word and by writing. If you remember, we just read, right? Say this, write it down. How does God warn? By word and by writing. And then whoever believes the word, reads the writing and takes it seriously, those who believe, the righteous, will live. That's why it says in chapter 2, verse 4 in, in Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in what? The word and the writing. And Paul says the same thing, right? The book of Romans. 
right? Paul in the book of Romans 1, 16 and 17 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written in Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous shall live by faith. Now when it comes to Romans, who are the righteous? Those who believe the gospel. That's the Word of God, the written Word of God, and the preached Word of God, the Gospel, right? Those who believe or have faith in the Gospel were the ones that were saved. This time not from physical death, but from eternal death. How is the Gospel believed? It must be heard by Word and through the written Word as well. And again, those who believe were saved. Now, how do you know if you believe? Well, with saving faith comes fear and understanding, which leads to action. Right? We've been preaching this over and over and over and over again. So if you look at the example of the Egyptians and Pharaoh in Exodus... Those who believed and feared and understood prompted them to what? Action. What was the action? Let me take my animals and my slaves to shelter so that they don't get hit by the hail. Now, what about this? What about Paul's version in Romans? You believe, fear comes with fear, understanding. How do you know if you have that? Through the way you live through the way you speak, through the way you deal with others, through the, the way you serve. Through, right? It's the same message. All over the Bible, from Exodus to Romans, and I would say all the way down to Revelation. Those who believe will repent. Those who, oh, sorry, those who repent will believe. And then those who believe will have fear and understanding. And how do they know? that they believe through their actions, through the way they live, right? That's what happened in, in the book of Exodus. Uh, and those who did not believe, those who, those who saw the previous six plagues and still did not believe, still didn't take the word of God seriously, those are the ones that, that died. And the same thing happens spiritually. Those who listen to God's word but don't take it seriously. Those who come to church not prepared. Half asleep. I haven't even started. This is intro. Sleeping already? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> God forbid hail come down right now. You, you, all sleeping people will probably get hit. <laughs> but that's, that's exactly what this is talking about. Exactly what this is talking about. You hear this Sunday in and Sunday out. You still don't take it seriously. There's still no fear. <laughs> hmm. Those who did not pay attention to the word of the Lord died on the fields along with their animals. Again, here we can see the fear of God is not something that we 
develop, not something that we gain. God's fear comes with faith, and with faith comes understanding. Why do I say that? Because these people saw the first six plagues. <laughs> Seventh plague is coming, warning after warning. Nothing. They stayed out in the field. They still obeyed Pharaoh instead of God. The fear of the Lord does not, is not gained. It's not, it's, it's not through knowledge. And I, I taught this in Sunday school. <laughs> it is a God-given fear with faith and understanding. It's, it's one thing. It's one ball that God gives to us as a gift. Faith with fear and understanding. Again, after seeing first six plagues, why is it that Pharaoh and those who followed him still did not listen to the warnings? Because they had no fear. Why? Because they had no faith and understanding. Why did those Egyptians still fear Pharaoh more than they feared God and even continued to obey Pharaoh to their deaths? Again, same thing, no fear. Ultimately, a godly fear is a gift from God himself. Those who rightly fear God must also have the faith and understanding to believe and to know the one true God. Right? Again, think about this, right? If God's ultimate purpose for the plagues is to reveal himself, to these people. And when you, if you were there, and if you think about these plagues, water turning into blood, gnats, flies, boils, frogs, wouldn't you, if you heard another warning, wouldn't you say, oh no, <laughs> the first six came true, maybe this seventh would also come true. I don't think anybody on their right mind would say, well, that was six flukes by Moses. Seventh, Moses' luck is going to run out soon. I don't think so. But they did. Most of the Egyptians did not fear God. Only some who feared God. Those were the ones who feared him rightly. Those were the ones who acted on their faith and their understanding of what Moses was trying to tell them. Now, Despite the stubbornness and the hardness of heart of Pharaoh and some of the Egyptians, you can see in the text that God was still merciful towards them, which leads us to the second significance of this plague of hail. What was the first significance? Why is this plague given so many verses in Exodus? Because it is deadly. Second, why is this plague given so many verses in Exodus? Or, or, or why does the author of Exodus kind of put a lot of words to explain this plague? Why? Because this plague is so deadly, the other significance of this plague is that God gave the Egyptians multiple warnings. If you remember the first six plagues, the first two plagues, God always warned. Right? Every set of three the first two plagues, God warns. The third just comes. First set, second set, same thing. This one, we're only on the first plague of the third set already. Two warnings. Why? Because this plague is deadly. God gave them two warnings, right? Check it out. Nine, uh, verse 14. First warning. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you 
yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me on all, in all the earth. First warning. Second warning, 19 to 21. Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field on to save shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And again, those who ever feared the Lord lived. 21, those who did not pay attention to the word of the Lord died. So even though the plague of hail is the deadliest that God sent upon Egypt, God's mercy is still on display as he pleads with the Egyptians through the warnings that he has given Moses to listen and to take his word seriously. Again, God's purpose for these plagues is for him to be known. And I would add for him to be known rightly. Right? So people who do not know God okay, will read and look at these plagues and think, man, that God must be some power-hungry, uh, angry God who wants to see the suffering of those against him. And can you blame them? If you read these plagues, you're probably thinking the same thing. Why is God doing this? Like, why? Why does it have to be so harsh? Because he wants to be known that bad. <laughs> right? We can't look at this as God being sadistic. I hope nobody here is looking at these plagues and thinking, man, that's a sadistic God that you guys worship. No. He's not. Because he's warning. And the reason he's warning is because he wants people to live. He doesn't want people to die. Right? But a lot of people don't know God that way. They look at the plagues and they say, nope, not worshiping that God. Because if I screw up with that God, I'm dead. Some Christians have that knowledge of God. Oh, I cannot, I cannot make a mistake against this God because that, he's going to punish me. He's going to send hail. Is that who God is? Is that what God is trying to reveal about himself to the people of Egypt and to us and even to the Israelites? Is that the way to know God rightly? I would say no. Okay? Now, our text in Exodus is not very clear as to what, what is it that God is trying to reveal about himself through these plagues. It's not clear. You'd have to interpret. The best way to interpret scripture is to go to other verses of Scripture. Right? So we're going to talk about a similar case in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3, verses 8 to 10. Let's read it. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but it's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What is it that God is trying to communicate, reveal, through the plagues. We'll see it in 2 Peter. 
Okay? Four Ps that God is, four Ps, characteristics of God that He's trying to reveal to us through pain and suffering. Number one, God is always present. Number two, God will always fulfill His promises. Number three, God is patient. And number four, God will inevitably punish. These are the traits, characteristics of God that he's trying to reveal to us through pain and suffering, and I would say through the plagues. So let's take these up one by one quickly. First, God is always present. 2 Peter 3.8. You guys read it. Okay, for the Lord, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. What does that mean? And what does that have to do with God being present? Okay, most of us have heard the term omnipresent. What does omnipresent mean? <laughs> Always present, right? Always present. Or it could refer to God's ever-abiding presence. But what does that mean? really mean <laughs> what does omnipresent what does being omnipresent mean okay. some of us have the idea that being omnipresent is God being here and in Grimsby where I live at the same time right he is like Dr. Strange have you seen Dr. Strange Dr. Strange Marvel I know Dr. Strange yeah Dr. Strange Marvel he can make himself be like 20 people so he can be, you know, everywhere at the same time. Is that God? <laughs> Is that what omnipresent being it means? Like God is like that, Dr. Strange. I have, there's 20 of me, and I can go everywhere I want at the same time. Is that it? I don't think so either. Okay? For God to be omnipresent with God means that God is outside of time. Okay? His presence or His being transcends time. Okay? You put it this way. If this was the, the universe, okay, and we live in the universe, and in the universe there is time, right? That's why there is always, the speed limit is about time. The uh, everything that we do is always has a time constraint to it. Our lives have time constraint, right? We only live to a certain amount of days or whatever. So there's always time constraints where we live. So some of us think that God's omnipresence is in there, but He's everywhere. No, God lives outside of time. So if this is the universe, this is God. He lives outside of it. That's why he's always present, because he's everywhere, even in time, right? So when you think about God being omnipresent, it is God seeing our past, present, and future as one big picture. No gaps, no skips, right? For us, it's hard to imagine because all we see is right now, okay? You're not seeing past right now, and you're not seeing future. You're only seeing present but God for God it's like that but with past present future 
in one picture. Th that's what it means for God to be omnipresent. That's why Peter says, do not overlook this fact. What's the fact? That the Lord, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like one day. Because he sees it as one. Past, present, and future as one thing. And he doesn't just see it. He's present in it. <laughs> he's there. He is in the past, present, and the future at the same time. How does, he do, how does he do that? Because he lives outside of time. Right? So Peter is saying, God's judgment, the day when God will make everything in the world right, it's going to come. But only God knows when. How? Because he's already present on that day even as we speak of it now. God is already on the day that he will come back. He's already present there. We're just talking about it right now. We don't know when it's coming. God is already there. That's why he knows when it is, how it's going to happen, because he's already there. Now, from our standpoint, that seems like forever. God, I've been waiting for this for the longest time. I've been a Christian for 20 years. And you keep saying you're going to come back. You're going to come back, but you're still not here. And if, if you think about the time of the apostles, they've been waiting for it since the time of the apostles. Still nothing. It's, it seems like forever from our perspective. Right? But for God, it is not. So why does it take so long? It leads us to the second characteristic of God, as we see in 2 Peter 3. Is that God will fulfill all of his promises. Check out 2 Peter 3b. Or 9b, 3.9b. But God is patient towards you, not wishing that you, any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Can you look at the verse before that? Can you go back to, uh, to 9 or 8 in 2 Peter? Okay, again, I want you guys to see this in context. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And then verse 9, 9, all of 9. Okay, this is all of 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill what? His promise. Again, what is the promise? That judgment will come. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Because he doesn't want anybody to perish, but so that everybody will come to repentance. The promise here is judgment. Not salvation, okay? It's judgment. He is not slow to fulfill his promised judgment. For us, it seems slow. Some of us are thankful. Thank God it's slow. <laughs> Thank you. Because I just can't help myself. I, I always fall asleep once the pastor gets up there. I just can't help it. Thank you that it's slow. 
But that Sloan, don't count that slowness as God being, you know, dilly-dallying or whatever for those of us who are waiting for salvation, right? That's not slowness. God is doing that because he is patient. So in context, again, the promise of God that Peter is talking about here in, in 9b or 9a is that God uh, promised a day of judgment. Much like in Habakkuk in our, or in our story in Exodus, God promised that one day he will bring judgment on everything that exists. Again, it might be slow for those of us who are eagerly waiting this day, but for God, whenever this day comes, it will be the exact time it's supposed to come. And again, God is already there. That's why he can guarantee that this promise will be fulfilled. That's the reason why. It's already there. And that's why he can say, no, this is coming. It might be slow, but it's coming. Right? Now, from our perspective, again, uh, that fulfillment of that promise might be slow. And some of us might be thankful about that. But the slowness that we perceive, okay, leads us to the third P. So God is, the first P is what? Eh? Present. Second P is? fulfill his promise and the third p is patience so that slowness that we think is right is just god being patient and that's 9b right god being patient do not overlook or sorry can you flash 9b again he's patient towards you that's why it's slow he's patient towards you he's on he's not like me i'm impatient I'm very impatient, right? Uh, but God is. He's patient. And that slowness is attributed to his patience. Uh, contrary to some people's understanding when it comes to reading Old Testament books, God does not enjoy destroying his creation. Uh, Peter states that God does not wish for anyone to perish. In fact, I believe that God gave human beings this sense of self-preservation and fear for this very purpose. You know how people are, um, if somebody, and I always use this uh, example, somebody, um, um, you know, just, just acts like, like they were going to hit you. Like if they go like this, what do you do? <laughs> you, you flinch, right? You, you close your eyes, you flinch. That's self-preservation. Because you're trying to save your eyes, you're trying to guard yourself. Self-preservation. And there's a fear that comes with that because you don't want to be hurt. I believe that God gave that to us out of his grace and mercy and his patience. So that whenever we feel like we're in danger, our first instinct is to find shelter. I got to save myself to find salvation, which is supposed to lead us back to God. Right? So in essence, God's patience and God's gift of self-preservation is God warning us and then giving us the ability through that sense of self-preservation and fear to run to him as our fortress of, and place of security. That's what that's for. We're supposed to be, at, when we're in danger, there's fear, and then there's preservation so that we can run to God. He's the only one who can save us. Now, unfortunately, sin has corrupted that sense of self-preservation and fear. So instead of running to God for refuge, that self-preservation made human beings selfish 
trusting their own ability to save themselves. And not only that, only looking to save themselves. Forget you. <laughs> I got to save myself. Like if there was a fire that broke out right now, you would see the real Christians up here. Right? Everybody would run to the exits. Oh, I forgot my wife. <laughs> because that's what sin does. It corrupts God's design. But that, that design is supposed to be there so that we will feel danger and then run to salvation, which is supposed to be God. But again, sin made us selfish. Um, and instead of rightly fearing God, sin has made human beings see God only as a wrathful and a merciless being. A wrong fear of God comes with that. So, so far we've taken a look at three characteristics found in 2 Peter 3. And I believe that when the Bible says that God is revealing himself through these plagues, these are the characteristics of himself or of God, that he's revealing to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. First, God is always present. Second, God always fulfills his promises for both justice and salvation. Third, is that our perception of God's slowness is him fulfilling his promises, uh, but, uh, sorry, our perception of God's slowness in fulfilling his promises is actually him being patient with us. Last, Last characteristic of God that he's revealing to us in these, the plague of hail is that he will one day punish. Now, it is true that God is patient. It is also true that God will fulfill his promises. And in the context of 2 Peter 3, again, that promise is that of a judgment. A judgment will come. So even though God is mercifully patient with his creation, one day he has to fulfill his promise of judgment. Right? And he will punish those who did not fear his word. Now here lies in the dilemma of being God. Okay? If you're God, you have to be patient, loving, kind, merciful, gracious but you also have to be just <laughs> that's a dilemma right because God promised I promise salvation because I love the world for God so loved the world he only gave right I promise salvation but I also promise judgment and since I promised that I have to fulfill it I cannot skip that because I love the world. Right? That's the dilemma of being God. He is merciful, but he is also just. He is patient, but he also has to fulfill his promised judgment. Let me illustrate it this way. When Eli was a year and a half, 18 months, okay, we, we picked up Jen's... Uh, dad, my father-in-law, in Etobicoke. Etobicoke, was it? Oh, Brampton. We picked him up in Brampton. Eli was sitting in the back in a car seat. Me and my wife sitting in the front. I was driving. So when his Lolo came in to the back, he started crying. 
start bawling. I want my mom. Didn't want to sit with his Lolo, okay? grandfather. He cried from Brampton all the way to where we lived back then was Mississauga. How long is that drive? 30, 40 minutes, about. Okay. When he started crying, as Lolo came in and he started crying, I already told him, you better stop. Okay, stop crying. It's only your Lolo. Kept crying. Second warning. Stop crying. It's only your Lolo. Third warning. Stop crying. If you don't stop, when we get home, you're going to get the belt. <laughs> right? If you don't stop crying. And this is during the drive. So I kept warning, warning, warning. Patience, patience, patience. Because that's irritating. A child crying in the back and you're driving. Have you ever experienced that? You just want to just, just strangle them, right? Three warnings. If you don't stop, if you don't stop. So we kept driving, 40 minutes. When I got home, when we got home to Mississauga, I parked the car. As soon as I put the car in park, the crying stopped. And he's all quiet. He's all good. I'm like, no. I've been telling you for 40 minutes to stop. You stop now? So now, the dilemma is, I already promised that I was going to spank this guy. <laughs> I promised three times <laughs> after I warned him. But now he's not crying anymore. Do I still go through with the promise or not? Because he stopped crying. And dads nowadays will probably say, oh, it's good boy, you stopped crying no more. What I said earlier, I'm not going to do anymore. No. Wrong. That's not how God is. God is loving. God is patient. God is merciful. God is gracious. But he also fulfills his promises, the good and the bad. That's the dilemma of being God, to be both just and the justifier. Right? I had to spank him. And I did. And it was one of the worst spankings I ever gave him. He was 18 months, barely walking. So uh, we went, uh, went upstairs, pulled down his pants. He was standing up, pulled down his pants. He doesn't know what's going on because he's like, I stopped crying already. What are you doing? And I'm like, I was going to spank him already. And like, no, there's a diaper. He's not going to feel it. Take the diaper out. <laughs> so I had to do it, right? And I missed. You're supposed to hit them in the, in the butt. I missed. I hit them in the back of the leg. Here. I remember that because the belt went around. Like a whip. It went. Whoosh. And after I did it, I'm like, oh, my wife is going to kill me. <laughs> but you had to do it. I didn't want to do it. But you had to do it. Right? That's a glimpse of what it's like to be God. He had to do something, right? He can't be one side and just loving and just patient and, just, and not be just. He had to do both. He had to be both. And thank God he was able to do both. How? On the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He punished sin 
He, he was just. He did the right thing. But at the same time, he was loving. Because through the Lord of Jesus Christ, those of us who believe will be saved. I believe that that's what God is trying to reveal to Pharaoh and the Egyptians through this plague of hail. Right? Now the question is this. If that's what he was trying to reveal, right? It's always present that his promises will be fulfilled, that he's patient, uh, but at the same time he will punish. The question is this. How do you respond? How did Pharaoh respond to God's revelation of himself through this plague? And it leads us to this third significance of the plague of hail. Pharaoh's response. Why is Pharaoh's response to this plague significant? What's the difference between this response and his other responses to the first six? You want to find out? Come next week. What's the difference? Why is it so significant? We'll take, at the third, we'll take a look at the third significance next week. So I'll bow down our heads. Let's pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you. And give you peace. And give you peace. And give you peace. Yes.